Well, I'm not going to ask you to stand uh, this morning uh, to read today's text because it's long. But uh, go ahead, if you have a Bible there, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24, and we will be considering the entire chapter together. I need to move quickly because we're going to baptize some folks this morning at, at the end of the service. As this chapter, chapter 24 of Acts, opens... By the way, this is message 65 in this series, so thanks for hanging in here. How many of you were here at the beginning, have been here for most of it? A lot of you. That's, that's awesome. Okay. As this chapter opens, as you may recall from uh, what Abiud and Feliki le- uh, led us in last week, uh, Paul's being held in Caesarea, uh, which is right on the beach on the Mediterranean. He's under armed guard. We saw last week that over 40 Jewish men in Jerusalem had conspired together with the chief priests and uh, the elders. They, they had taken an oath to neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. How would you feel if you knew that there were 40 guys that had taken that kind of oath to take you out? That, that's, that's quite a feeling, right? By the providence of God, Paul's nephew had somehow caught wind of their plans and had shared with them, uh, first, share them first with Paul and, and then at Paul's direction with Claudius Lysias, who was the, uh, the commander of the Roman cohort there in Jerusalem. Lysias immediately ordered, uh, and this too is impressive, that 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, a, a total of 470 heavily armed Roman soldiers, escort Paul by night to be placed in the custody of Felix, the governor at Caesarea, and uh, that's, they did that. Uh, for some reason, Claudius Lysias felt like that number of soldiers and that particular array of um, not only men but equipment uh, were necessary to uh, protect Paul. So they escorted Paul by night to be placed in custody with Felix, uh, the governor at Caesarea. And, and that first night, they stopped midway on a northwesterly course between Jerusalem and Caesarea at the Roman fortress at Antipatris, place today, known today as Tel Afek. And the next day, they traveled on to Caesarea, where he was placed under guard in Herod's Praetorium. A Praetorium is a, a governmental headquarters. His trial before Antonius Felix, which we'll think about together, together this morning, was was the first of three successive trials. Uh, first, this one here in Acts 24, and then 25 and 26. Uh, all three right here in Caesarea Maritima, or Caesarea by the sea. And as Paul stood first before Felix, the Roman governor, and then Portius Festus, uh, Felix's successor in that uh, position, and then finally before Herod Agrippa, um, he was facing down literally the, the the overwhelming combined power of both Rome and Jerusalem, or Roman Judaism, if you will. Humanly speaking, his chances of a favorable outcome, that is avoiding either extreme physical um, punishment uh, and long-term imprisonment or even death, were slim to none. And yet it's important to recall, and I I have someone graciously left me a cough drop from the first service because I am really struggling this morning with coughing. It's important to recall that Paul, 
saw his circumstances quite differently than we would. This is bad form, by the way. You know, publicly speaking, you're not supposed to put anything in your mouth. But Paul understood himself to be neither an apostate from the Jewish faith nor a traitor to Rome. And still his accusers would attempt to frame him in exactly that way. And we might note, just as they had Jesus, right? Remember that the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish ruling council, had accused Jesus of blasphemy and of attempting to destroy the temple. Very similar themes. And before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, they had accused Jesus of sedition. Specifically, um, of subverting the nation, of opposing paying taxes to Caesar, and of proclaiming um, himself to be a rival king. In Caesarea now, Paul's enemies laid similar charges against him, claiming that he too had offended the Jewish law, uh, the temple, and Caesar himself. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, it, it really struck me that when persecution comes in full force here in the United States, and I really believe it's just around the corner, if I'm reading it right, we can reasonably expect that the charges that we uh, and or our children and or our grandchildren will face might similarly include offenses against the American national religion, if you'll accept that concept, with its culture of gross immorality, with its culture of child sacrifice, and against local, state, and federal governments. And Jesus told his disciples, Luke 21, 12 to 13, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then he added, he added this, this will be your opportunity to witness. Love that. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So so will we? Let me ask you that today. Will we? Will you? Are we readying ourselves for those kinds of moments? Are we readying our children and our grandchildren to stand with humility and integrity for Christ when those opportunities to bear witness come to them in their lives? I would suggest to you who are parents of school-aged children that your first and most important priority must not be to make sure your child makes the varsity team or achieves the highest grade point average, or gets admitted into the most prestigious schools, or marries up, but rather that they know Christ and stand confident in their own faith, possessing a firm and thoughtful conviction that will inform and strengthen them in their own hour of trial. Recall what God said to another man named Ananias about Saul, Saul who became Paul when he was converted. Ananias didn't want to have anything to do with this man who had done so much harm to the followers of Jesus. And Nevertheless, the Lord said to him, Go, 
For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And now these days in prison, these court appearances before the Gentiles and rulers and his fellow Jews were Paul's divinely appointed opportunities to bear witness. You won't find any evidence in the Acts narrative that Paul considered himself to be the victim in these circumstances. There's no no victim mentality here. So we shouldn't say, oh, poor Paul. Um, Paul knew the law as well or better than anyone. He, he recognized that the authority given to Rome came from God. When Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, remember this? Pilate said, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And so Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. It's an important principle for us to get a hold of. Because the apostles taught that that it was only when the government asked them to do or not do something that they felt they must do before God, that they resisted or disobeyed human authority. But right up to that point, they made themselves subject to the government. And there is a sense in which when we rest into human government, into uh, civil, state, federal law, we are resting ourselves into God's authority and trusting him for the outcome. Paul was well aware that the message of the gospel and belief in Jesus did not in any way undermine the law, whether Jewish law, whether Roman law, but rather the gospel and the message of Christ upheld the law and fulfilled it. So he wrote in Romans 3.31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The seriousness with which the Jewish leaders took this impending case is apparent in that the high priest himself made the 65-mile journey down to Caesarea, along with the elders and a lawyer whose name was Tertullus, who would serve as the mouthpiece of the Sanhedrin in this trial. So in verses 1 to 9, we see the indictment that was brought. And I've thrown a little uh, Latin into your outline today, so you can leave here feeling a lot smarter than you came in. And you, you can drop these words at parties on all kinds of things, and people will be impressed with your vocabulary. Um, but let's begin then with captatio benevolentiae. I'm going to explain to you in a moment what that means. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, 
I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. A literal translation of that Latin expression, captatio benevolentiae, would be to capture goodwill. To capture goodwill. That is to, to secure the feelings of favor from an audience, and in this case, especially a judge or a jury. In law courts in those days, this was a, a standard, predictable starting point for both the prosecution and the defense. Tertullus' purpose in his opening lines was simple. It was to massage and, and pamper the Roman governor to kind of stroke his ego. And, and, and he does that in a nauseating way. In verses 2 and 3, he, he just shamelessly flatters him. Imagine a prosecutor in an American courtroom saying, Judge, I don't know of any more significant judge in all of the land than you. Under your jurisdiction, justice has been promoted. Crime has come to an end. Peace has come to our nation. Thank you, judge. And that's what Tertullus said about Felix. And yet everything he said about Felix was a lie. Tiberius Claudius Antonius Felix was the fourth governor of Judea. And in truth, uh, Felix had a reputation for extreme cruelty and openness to bribery. History records that his regime was one of the most corrupt and incompetent to ever rule uh, in the name of Rome. If any of that sounds vaguely, vaguely familiar or contemporary to you, well, that's up to you. During his tenure, Judea didn't uh, enjoy anything close to peace. Roving bands of insurrectionists constantly wreaked havoc in Judea, They assassinated Roman soldiers. They assassinated Roman citizens. And on one occasion, by Felix's own order, even a Jewish high priest was assassinated. He sought a lot of reforms, had a reputation for uh, seeking reforms, that every one of them seemed to be aimed at one thing, and that was increasing his own personal gain. Felix was a spectacularly crooked governor. And yet, that didn't stop Tertullus from saying the exact opposite. What uh, what he did, most of us in in common vernacular would would say it would would be something that involved the word kissing, right? And John Stott summarized it this way: Tertullus expressed gratitude for the peace Felix had secured and the reforms he had introduced, whereas in reality he had put down several insurrections with such barbarous brutality that he earned for himself the horror, not the thanks, of the Jewish population. So Tertullus began to articulate the three charges of which he was accusing Paul on behalf of Jerusalem. Count number one was this, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And before we get to the seriousness of that accusation, I I just want to say that I really wonder whether uh, an amused grin kind of broke out on the faces of uh, Felix or Paul or perhaps both of them uh, at the vagueness and the hyperbole that characterized this first count. As to vagueness, what competent prosecutor accuses a defendant with such a lack of clarity as to call him a plague? You should put this guy in prison because he's a plague. A plague is infectious. It's deadly, it's disruptive, and yet in a court of law, sticks and stones may break your bones. Names should never hurt you. They should never harm you. As to hyperbole, did Paul really stir up riots among all the Jews throughout the entire world? It's an impressive charge, far from the truth. Paul must have been impressed with it, though, you know. You think that much of me. And 
And yet this first count was very serious because of its political overtones, undertones. Tertullus is casting Paul as an infectious, disruptive actor and therefore a live threat to the peace that Rome insisted be maintained in every sector of the empire. Count number two, he says, this guy's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. There are three words in there that they are just loaded. Tertullus is, is being subversive with his choice of words. First, he calls him a, a ringleader, an agitator, an instigator, a conspirator, a mastermind, a disruptive element, someone to keep your eyes on at all times. Next, he refers to the way, the Christian movement, as a sect, a cult, a faction, a splinter group, and he calls them, and he calls them Nazarenes. Jesus himself was a Nazarene. Nazareth was his hometown. But the village of Nazareth was held in very low esteem. To call someone a Nazarene was generally considered a slur. That's like reminding someone that they're from Bucota, you know. Um, when Jesus' disciple uh, Philip invited his friend Nathaniel to meet Jesus, he replied, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so there it is. What might have been Tertullus' strategy with this charge against Paul. The Christian movement had, had not yet been officially labeled either religiously heretical or politically subversive. But it seems to me that Tertullus is throwing shade not only on Paul, but also on all Christians attempting to cast Christianity, not in terms of a religious faith movement, but, but a fanatical political faction made up of potentially radical insurrectionists, that is to say, as prospective enemies of Rome. Now, I wonder if you're aware, by the way, that because of your identity as an evangelical Christian, your government thinks of you as a radical extremist. In April 2013, the the Department of Defense under President Obama classified evangelical Protestants and Catholics as extremist religious groups alongside groups like Al-Qaeda and Hamas and Abu Sayyaf and the Ku Klux Klan, other white supremacists, other groups on that same list. Count number three is expressly Jewish in its very nature. Verse six, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. This accusation relates to chapter 21, verses 27 to 29, when when some Jews from Ephesus, you remember, saw Paul in the city with his Gentile friend Trophimus from Ephesus and made the inaccurate assumption, presumption, that he had brought Trophimus into the inner courts of the temple where where a Gentile was not to go. And they seized him all right. But they also attempted to kill him on the spot without trial and invited the hundreds, if not thousands, of Jews in the temple courts that day to join them in his murder. And had it not been for the alert Roman soldiers who acted very quickly, uh, Paul probably would have been murdered. When the prosecution rested, Tertullus hadn't actually laid a glove on Paul. And he knew it. And so he passed the baton back to Felix 
and says, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Let me translate that for you. Tertullus was, was really saying, in effect, you know, we, we've actually got nothing on him, and so we're really hoping that you'll play ball and find something for us. That's what he's saying. And the entourage of elders from Jerusalem that had come to Caesarea with, with them could only add something like, yeah, what he said. All right? They had their suspect, if only they could find a crime to pin on him. It seems that Tertullus was hoping beyond hope that if Paul uh, were to be brought under Felix' direct scrutiny, then maybe, just maybe, Felix would buy what little had been offered him, or Paul might mess up and incriminate himself, and and the case would be won. But not so. In Acts 10, uh, 24, 10 to 21, Paul gets his opportunity to mount a defense. And he begins with his own captatio benevolentiae. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Notice notice how much briefer it is than the one presented by Tertullus. He, he affirms Felix for his longevity in office, but he doesn't resort to any flattery. He just states the facts. He, he stands confidently here on the solid ground of the gospel. He stands on his personal integrity, which is why he can make his defense cheerfully. And what follows, he he brings a brief but well-ordered defense. In response to count one, Paul begins, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Well, let's examine that together. First, he points out to Felix that he himself could verify if he wanted to that he had only been in Jerusalem for 12 days before that fateful moment in the temple courts. And what that says to me is that it it may have been that the Roman security apparatus in Jerusalem possessed the ability to uh, keep track of who came and went, when and with whom and in verse 17, he adds that he had been out of the country for several years before the events in question. So, so if he'd wanted to stir up an insurrection, he clearly had not had time to do something that would require that kind of planning, that kind of organizing. And so that when he was apprehended in the temple, he, he hadn't been found disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. And then, and then he sets Tertullus and Ananias, the high priest, and, and the other Jewish leaders just back on their heels by simply pointing out that the burden of proof was on his accusers. And and they had no evidence whatsoever that would substantiate the claims that they had brought against him. They, they had come to court without a case. Having cleaned their clocks on the first count, then he moves on to answer count number two, that he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. But this I confess to you, and he's, I think there's a... a, a a level of humility in this response. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God 
and man. We saw a couple of weeks ago that Paul believed that the logical decision of every Pharisee, having been exposed to the truth of the gospel, should have been that they would recognize Jesus as Messiah and put their faith in him as Savior and Lord. And so he openly acknowledges that he is fully a Jew, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believing the entirety of the law and the prophets, and hoping in God, as the other elders present do, that there will be a resurrection, and, and that both the just and the unjust will be included in that resurrection. And on that basis, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. The Apostle Paul talked about the hope that we have, the confident anticipation that we have in Christ of of the resurrection from the dead as the purifying hope of the church. And and so Paul says, because of my understanding, because of my hope for, hope in, confidence of the resurrection, uh, I, I keep my conscience clear. Ringleader? Agitator? Instigator? Nah. What and who I am is a fulfilled Jew? Follower of the way, a man who makes it a high priority to maintain a disciplined conscience before God and others. And the way, not a politically subversive movement, but a movement of spiritual reform, a movement of renewal. Albert Muller commented that the early Christians not only outthought their opponents, they also outlived them. Not in terms of longevity, but in terms of their morality. The, the Apostle Peter urged believers to maintain a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Finally, he responds to count number three, which was profaning the temple. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Again, Paul strenuously denies profaning the temple, explains exactly what he was doing there. He had come to the temple to bring gifts for the poor, or come to Jerusalem to bring gifts for the poor, which I take to be an allusion to the offering that he brought from the churches in Macedonia uh, for his brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church. Uh, He came to the temple to present offerings, and and which is probably a reference to paying the the temple fees for the men that uh, we read about who are uh, completing a Nazarite vow. Uh, He was found in ceremonial purity, he says, uh, having completed the mandatory seven-day process that that would enable him uh, to participate in his new friend's fulfillment of their vows. And regarding this, his accusers from Ephesus weren't even present to press their charges, which was actually a serious breach of Roman law. It would be tantamount to perjury today of lying to the court. So none of the above he wants them to understand are suggestive of someone who is trying to profane the temple or disrupt the temple worship, but rather they were the actions of a devout Jew. And then he offers this addendum, verses 20 to 21, or or else let these men themselves, referring to Ananias and, and the elders from Jerusalem, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead 
that I am in trial before you this day. And you may recall on that occasion in the court of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, counsel had been divided between the Pharisees who declared Paul innocent of all charges and the Sadducees who considered him guilty, but only because, only because of the Sadducees' denial of the resurrection of the dead. And so in this final brief salvo, if you will, Paul appears to be just intentionally driving a wedge and just widening that chasm among his accusers over the notion of a future resurrection for the purpose of judgment. For Paul and the other apostles, Jesus' resurrection from the dead was living, definitive, undeniable proof of the resurrection. So the resurrection of the dead and the coming judgment, of course, are are bedrock foundations of our faith as Christians. At the end, what's Paul done? He's established himself as a a law-abiding citizen of Rome, uh, as a uh, faithful son of Israel. We'll we'll see this thread running through his defense in each of the next two trials as well. And And in each trial, Paul's audience will again include representatives of both Jerusalem and Rome. In Acts 24 to 20, uh, 22 to 23, here's another Latin term, custodia libera. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, uh, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. And that's the, it's actually the, the direct translation of that term custodia Libra, custody with liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Interestingly, this Felix, being such an such a ungodly character, was well acquainted, it says, with the way, with, with Christianity, but exactly what that awareness consisted of is, is undefined. We, we can safely say that he, he knew enough, he knew enough to know that Ananias had come with a completely baseless accusation. But Felix then finds himself on the horns of a dilemma. He, he couldn't convict Paul since the tribune uh, from Rome, or from Jerusalem, Claudius Lysias, uh, had found no basis for a death penalty, had no, found no basis even for imprisonment, nor had the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, neither had Tertullus even come close to substantiating his charges. And so Felix takes two actions. First, he buys himself and Paul some time. He puts them off by saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. And in this case, not to decide was to decide. Because he knew that, that Lysias had nothing to add that would incriminate Paul. So his coming down to Caesarea from Jerusalem would be meaningless in this case. He he places Paul under house arrest, secondly, in the the Roman Praetorium in Caesarea. Um, And and this custodia libera, free custody, meant that he was never left unguarded. He was always under custody. But his friends had free access to him. They, They could come and minister to his needs. And it's not hard to imagine that Luke probably would have visited him in Caesarea, that Philip the Evangelist and his family, who we met earlier right there in Caesarea, would have visited him, maybe other members of the church. 
In Acts 24, verses 24 to 27, uh, Felix basically hears, fears, and forgets. Uh, that's kind of my summary of this section. After some days, uh, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. And so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Paul's there for at least two years. Uh, Felix heard the gospel, he feared God, and he forgot about Paul. While he's in custody, Felix and his trophy wife Drusilla Send for Paul to hear more about the Christian faith. Trophy wife, because Drusilla was Felix's third wife. Uh, she was quite young. She's, uh, historians believe she was probably about 19 at this time. Now, Felix had seduced her. He, uh, she subsequently divorced her first husband to marry Felix. And despite all of that, it seems that uh, Drusilla demonstrates a spiritual hunger, um, at least an interest in hearing from Paul the message of faith in Christ, the message of the gospel. Luke records that Paul reasoned with them in those meetings about three things, righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And, you know, when Paul reasoned with them about righteousness, we can surmise with confidence that, that he helped them to understand that every individual is sinful. Every individual is separated from God by their sin. And that because of our sinful, separated condition, none of us can attain God's righteousness on our own. Paul wrote to the Romans and said, There is no distinction, for all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Notice the verb tenses in that verse. Those are familiar verses to to many of us. But we may not think about the verb tenses. First, he says, all have sinned. That's past tense. There's no distinction. Be Even those who seem to be the most morally upright among us have sinned against God. Every one of us. And then he adds, and all fall short of the glory of God. Not past tense, but present continuous tense. All are falling short of the glory of God. That is, all of us at all times go on failing to attain to God's righteous standard. We can't do anything else. Uh, it's all, all we can do is sin. But then he adds some good news that, that counters and entirely eclipses that very bad news when he says, when he adds in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So God provides the means for sinful people who are separated from God, to be redeemed. And he provides it exclusively through Jesus Christ. Paul put it another way in chapter 6 of Romans when he wrote, for the wages of sin is death. Again, bad news, really bad news. The just compensation for our rebellion against our Creator is death. Both physical and eternal. But then again, he adds the good news. But the free gift, the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can God pardon rebellious human beings? How how can he let sinners go scot-free? A scandalous, isn't it? That a holy God would do that? A righteous God would do that? What does it mean that God justifies us and redeems us through Christ? What, What does it mean that eternal life is a free gift? It all sounds good, but it also sounds awfully exclusive to the modern mind, right? Why is all of it available only through Jesus Christ? It's this. The Bible tells us over and over again that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to live a perfectly sinless life, and then to die in our place, to bear our sin in his own body on the cross in order to provide payment in full for the full debt of our sins so that we can be then forgiven and receive God's gift of eternal life. Paul put it this way in Second Corinthians 5.21. He wrote, for our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is Jesus. He made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life and then he took our sin, our utter unrighteousness on himself so that those who would receive him by faith could then receive his gift of righteousness. He exchanged his perfect righteousness for our unrighteousness. The Bible says that he bore our sins in his own body on the cross. Jesus became the embodiment of our sin. It was all placed on him. Somebody had to die. God didn't want it to be you. So lovingly, he sent his son who died in your place. You know, it must have been awkward when when Paul spoke with Felix and Drusilla about self-control. They each had divorced in order to enter into a marriage that had resulted from unbridled lust. Drusilla, who was a Jewess, had married Felix, who was a Gentile, in disobedience to God's law. Felix was famous for his immorality, for his explosive temper, his murderous impulses, in short, his overall lack of self-control. So it's not surprising then that Luke tells us that Felix was alarmed, probably a, a real understatement, as Paul spoke frankly with them about the coming judgment that everyone will stand before God to be judged. Those who have rejected Christ will stand before God to answer for each and every one of their sins. See, you either have a Savior or you don't. You're either, you have someone who has come between you and God and solved the problem of your separation from God or you don't. John said, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And this was the message that terrified Felix, a message that should terrify anyone who chooses to reject Jesus Christ. Uh, On the other hand, the Bible also says that those who have received Christ will stand before God, but not to be judged for our sins, not to determine whether we'll spend eternity in heaven or hell. That was already settled at the cross. And Jesus made full and final payment for all of our sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When those who by personal faith have received 
forgiveness of sin and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ stand before God, we will be judged not for our sins, but for for what we've done with what he gave us in our lives. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should do them. And so when believers stand before God, when you and I stand before God, the question will be the degree to which we did them, the degree to which we lived according to those things that God prepared for us to do. Antonius Felix stands out, doesn't he, as a a particularly tragic figure. Having heard the message of forgiveness, having heard the message of eternal life in Jesus Christ, he, he pushed it away by pushing Paul away. And by pushing Paul away, he was pushing God away. That may describe you this morning. Just push it away. Just repress it. Move away. Back off. And rather than deciding Paul's case, Felix dismissed him. He delayed the decision. He dabbled in order to obtain a bribe. And he finally deferred even the responsibility for Paul. And each of his decisions to dismiss and to delay and to dabble and defer was driven by cowardice, by, by political cunning, by craven greed. But I think that Philip or Felix understood, and I hope that you understand this morning, that, that rejecting the gospel by refusing to repent of your sin of, and receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord doesn't make it untrue. Neither will repressing that, that nagging reminder of coming judgment and of re- relegating it kind of to the, the outer rim of your consciousness and beyond if you can get it there. Neither that will not delay the coming of Jesus to, to judge the whole earth. Judgment is coming. That's what the Bible says though, in so many ways over and over again. Judgment is coming. Why? Because Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he's going to come suddenly and he's going to be going to come unannounced. So let me ask you, are, are you ready for his coming? Have you fled to Jesus for forgiveness, for shelter from judgment? Will you receive him today? Will you, will you receive him as Savior and as Lord, a forgiver of your sins, the leader of your life? The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And each one who will be baptized this morning is making that public confession of their personal faith in Jesus Christ. Um, because they, each of them have come to that place of believing in their heart that God raised him from the dead. So they're acknowledging him as their Lord, their only Savior. And it's a privilege this morning to participate with them in this moment and to celebrate the work of God in their lives. So we have some young ones, we have some older ones, and this is an exciting moment in our church. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you today for um, your grace toward us in Christ. It doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense if you... God, love us. And then it makes all kinds of sense that you would love us, that you would not want us to be separated from you. 
that you would send your son on a rescue mission to deliver us from the the weight and the consequence of our sin, that we might be reconciled to you and have the opportunity to spend eternity with you. Lord, I pray today for those who may be here who have not surrendered their life to you, who have not believed the gospel, that you might take these words that I have spoken today and by your spirit use them to bring conviction. Thank you for those who are being baptized today, Lord. We we celebrate with them. What a joy to enter into these moments with them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.